Get your Bibles. I know I have John 18 up there on the screen. I want you to get your Bible out. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Because I want to lay a little groundwork uh, for what we're going to discuss and study this morning. And I want us to, not that we don't always take the sermon seriously, uh, but I really want you to think this morning. Uh, if the church doesn't engage the knowledge and the mind that God has given to us to engage, we're going to lose. And I want you to understand the cultural war in our country. I don't want to be defeatist, but I want to say we're at a point that it's not about trying to save the country. I honestly believe it's about protecting God's people. And I think it's important for us to understand we're not going to turn the whole tide of what's going on in our country. But there are pockets and there are people who are going to be looking for answers. And if we're not equipped and really able to answer the questions realistically, we're going to lose. And then it's just a matter of hanging on as long as we can until we just dwindle away. And I do believe the kingdom of God is a kingdom of power. I think it's a kingdom that He prophesied would never be destroyed. And His church is always going to be here. But we just sang a song that says, Here I am. This world needs to hear God's people worship. Our country needs to hear God's people stand up with reasonable answers that are practical to the issues and the problems that we're seeing within our culture. And we can look to Washington, D.C., we can look to Austin to uh, file legislation and pass laws that would bring about peace, that would bring about unity, that would solve the problems that we're seeing. But if we're waiting for that to happen, we're wasting time. There's but one message that will unify. There's but one message that brings hope. There's but one message that will fix the problems we see in our country. I want to tell you the solution is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Ephesians chapter 2 speaks to that. That's why I want to start there this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 11. He says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles, the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strained from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace." And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. This year has been a challenge. The last 18 months have been challenging. And I think we could all acknowledge that. And it's good to finally see some sense of normalcy kind of return. But we need to realize the normal world we're entering back into has already changed. And there are things that are being questioned 
that I want to tell you 20 years ago, and I sound like an old man when I say that, I didn't have to answer. That my teenage sons are needing to be equipped because other children their age are coming with questions and answers and things that they're being indoctrinated with that directly impact the identity of who we are. Now, I'm going to talk about a subject just set the stage for really the sermon this morning. And I promise I will be respectful of your time. But I want to do an exercise that hopefully illustrates the importance of us not getting lazy and apathetic to the things of God. And really thinking and utilizing our knowledge and the brains that God has given to us to be able to have conversations with people that would be a benefit to their soul and certainly within our own homes to equip our children to answer these difficult and challenging questions. John chapter 18. That discussion with Pilate. Scott kind of set the stage for this. Pilate therefore said unto him... Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I to this world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Now this... The discourse here. Pilate is asking Jesus, are you a king? You know why Pilate asked that? Because if Jesus was a king, Pilate would be threatened. And if Pilate were to be threatened in his authority, what would Pilate want to do with Jesus? He would want him to be murdered. He would want him to be crucified. He would want him to be executed. But notice what Jesus said. He said, I came to bear witness of truth. You know what that did for Pilate? That said, Jesus is no threat to me. Because you know what Pilate's truth was? He was the governor of the Roman Empire. He had the armies. He had the land. He had the authority. He had the control. And who is Jesus got? These fishermen? This tax collector? These people who now have left him? One who betrayed him and gave him over to the Jewish authorities to have done with him what they would will. He's no threat to me. So therefore, Pilate asked this rhetorical question of, what is truth? It was a dismissive question for Pilate. Pilate was saying, of the truth, you're no threat to me. Therefore, he goes back to the Jews and says, what? He hadn't done anything wrong. What do you want to do? Because Pilate's truth reinforced... What? What he believed about a definition of a kingdom. Where's Pilate's kingdom today? Where's the kingdom of Christ? See, it's still here, isn't it? The Roman Empire has been long gone and destroyed for centuries. Yet the kingdom of Christ is still here. But Pilate's refusal to acknowledge the truth caused him to make a huge mistake. Now, we're not asking this question, what is truth, in a dismissive manner. 
But I want to tell you, our culture is asking, what is truth? Who determines what truth is? And ultimately, we see phrases like this. Live your truth. How many of you have ever seen that or heard that? Raise your hand. I think every hand probably should be raised. We've heard that, haven't we? Your power lies in your truth. You know what this indicates? Is that you are the ultimate authority to define and determine what is truth. And if it's true for you, it may not have to be true for me. But brethren, wake up. Because when we live in a state of relativism, where all everyone's thoughts of truth and definitions of what is true and right and are equally made valid, we live in a world ruled by relativism. And understand, if we don't live in a world that's ruled by objective truth, we're going to be ruled by those in power according to their relative truth. And what are we seeing in our country? Oh, it's okay for you to have your truth as long as it doesn't go against the people who are in power and their truth. Because then we have an issue, don't we? Then our voices are suppressed. Then we can't speak freely of what we believe to be true. And really, this goes all the way back to the garden. Because what happened in the garden? God gave Adam and Eve an objective truth. You eat of this fruit of this tree that I've told you not to eat of, you will die. You see, that wasn't Adam and Eve's truth. That was an objective truth given to them by their Creator that said, don't do this or this is the consequence. But you know what happened to Adam and Eve? They gave in to their own desires and rejected the truth and the construct of truth that God had provided for them and said, it's better that I live by my desires than by some objective form of truth. And there we see the fall of man. Now, Jesus prayed in John 17. And in verse 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, every word of the scriptures is important. And when Jesus said, Thy word is truth, it didn't say, Your word performs truth. Your word executes truth. In John 14, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life... He wasn't saying, I'm a truthful being. He's saying, I am the ultimate manifestation of anything that is true and right. And there's a huge distinction. You and I can practice truth, but I'm not truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, the authority. Your worldview is going to be determined the way you answer this question. How do you define truth? Is it within you? Because if it is, then you're going to believe in relativism. But if you'll acknowledge that it's outside of you, 
then you live in objectivism. And I believe God calls us to live objectively observing His truth. And in that, we know the will of God. We live in a time that it's no longer even about choices or morality. We've lost that war. And I want to illustrate that to you. We are dealing with people who want to redefine reality. And I want to tell you, they're attacking now at the very basic fundamental principle of what God gave man in the very beginning of man's creation. And the fact that they're already to that point tells me we've lost as far as turning the culture around. Now in Romans 1, this is a passage I've read and it's in the ESV, but it's in the ESV for a reason. Because there's a certain word that's used that I want us to really think about this morning. I've read Romans 1 numerous times. And it talks about the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you know what? If you do these things, God's wrath is going to be poured out upon you. If you commit adultery and you live in sin, if you live in a fornication, if you live as a lying, stealing, backbiting individual, you have no hope. This legislates morality of what's right and wrong. And I've read this passage and said, Amen. But I've missed a more important concept. Honestly, until just a few weeks ago. And what is that? Because certainly those things are true. But it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. By their unrighteousness, guess what they do? They redefine what's real and true. Brethren, what are we seeing? We have children that are being raised to say, you choose what gender you are. And that's okay. And the minute we say anything or speak out against that, from the truth of the Word of God, guess what? We're suppressed. Why? Because the culture has made a decision. This is where we want to go and this is what we want to have happen and nobody's going to stand in the way of that. Now, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And I've used this passage and talked about we can just look at the very creation of God and we can see evidence of God's glory and His eternal power. Because why? Because it's revealed through the things that have been made. But I think it even goes deeper than just the observations made about the physical world that we live in. I think it goes to the heart of man. Because who created us? 
See, we're not trying to disprove evolution, which was 20, 30 years ago, right? We're just sitting here dealing with this idea of identity and saying that it's fluid. Rest assured this morning, sex and gender are synonyms. They are the same. If someone chooses to live within their own and from whatever situation or circumstances have impacted their life, that they're choosing to identify as something else, what they have done is they're saying, I'm rejecting objective truth of what I am because I want to be something else. And they're living according to relative truth. How do we know that? What's the first basic truth God communicates regarding man that he created? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God defines gender. God's truth says there's not nine, there's two. Male and female. Now, I have studied gender dysphoria. And it is an actual diagnosis in the DSM-5. The Diagnostical Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses. And I'm aware of that diagnosis and... I want to say there are some people who really struggle with that. We're talking about one-tenth of one percent of people. But guess what we're going to be seeing now? A lot more. I want to tell you at the heart of it is not just am I male or female. It's is God going to determine who I am or am I going to be the determiner of who I am? Do you see how this illustrates exactly what we've been struggling with. You know when it really hit me was over the last year, hundreds of Zoom meetings, right? A lot of them I have to register for. And in that, there's a form. And it'll ask, gender, male or female. But then there's all these others. It's fine, I select male. But then it pops up another box. How do you identify? What are your pronouns? And I promise you, I'm not mocking this. But I want us to engage our mind. The minute we choose to identify ourselves by chosen pronouns, guess what we've done? We've told them they've won. I want to encourage you, don't check those boxes. Someone asks you what your pronouns are, tell them, according to objective truth, I am male. Or I am female. Well, but how do you identify yourself? Objectively, by truth, I am male or I am female. Do you understand? That's us standing up and that's not hateful. That's not, if someone wants to be called something else, I'm going to call them that. Because names and those things typically are androgynous. It's fine. But the minute we check that box or we say, well, I identify as he, him, then I have validated relativism. And I want to encourage our young people because you guys are going to face this more and more. 
don't compromise and be confident in who God created you to be. You're born a little girl, you're female, embrace the glorious creation that God has made you to be. Embrace the role that God has called you to live up to. Embrace being a wife and a supporter of your husband. Embrace being a mother and rearing your children and guiding them and teaching them the important principles that God has entrusted for you to teach them. Men, if you're born a male, embrace what it means to be a leader. Embrace what that means of God calling you to be a firm foundation of which a home can be built upon, ultimately on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because we're dealing with this very question of what's male and female. We've lost as far as the culture war is considered. But we're always going to have opportunities. And brethren, we're not here to change the world. We're here to win souls. And too often we get caught up trying to change America and change legislation. And ch- Let's just worry about the souls of men. All those other things are going to go the way that they are going to go. Was Jesus alive in a time of divisiveness? Did Jesus live in a world where people hated one another simply because of their identity? Yes. And you know what? Jesus never preached to try to fix the government. What did he try to fix? The hearts of men. That's where we need to put our time. That's where we need to put our focus. So what is our identity in Christ? Now understand, we have to be careful with our influence. You may have acquaintances who choose to identify themselves as something different. And I want to tell you, when they post something on Facebook and you like that, do you understand what you're doing? You are endorsing that. And if you identify as a child of God and you are endorsing immorality and ungodliness, God sees that. God knows that. And I'm not saying you respond on their wall with Scripture and try to argue with them. But don't endorse it. Don't give yourself to the one that's saying, way to go, I'm happy for you, live your truth. Because that only solidifies that in their mind that nobody's going to teach me different. And if nobody's going to teach me different, I must be okay. And then one day the Lord's going to return. And He's going to execute judgment and justice. And I pray for mercy. For myself... And for everyone. But brethren, it's not loving for us to endorse immorality and things that are against God. It's more loving when we stand up and speak the truth against those things. So let's talk about our identity in Christ. Who are you? You know, this is one of those philosophical questions. Who am I? You wake up in the morning, I look at myself, who am I? Who is Chase Palmer? You ever ask yourself that? I want... There are some... I hope you don't ask who is Chase Palmer. 
when you're looking at yourself in the mirror. Well, that's another sermon. Um, There are some quotes that are very popular. Aristotle said this. He says, Knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. That's deep. Why is that so deep? Well, because Aristotle said it must be deep, right? Aristotle was just a man. Proverbs 9 and 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Where are you going to go? Are you going to determine what's wisdom in your heart by your relativism, or are you going to trust the Word of God? I'm going to side with the Word of God, that objective truth that's been given. Here's another one. Jim Valvano. Some of you, it, it breaks my heart that my boys are like, who's that guy? He was a great college basketball motivator of men. Could give a rousing speech, and even a few days before he died, he gave a very powerful speech that started the Jimmy V Foundation, which does a lot for cancer research, and he talked about never giving up. And it's a rallying cry. You know what he said? He said, to find the unlimited scope of human possibility, look within yourself. I want to tell you, some of your friends would put this stuff on Facebook, and you know what y'all would do? Amen, I love that. Yes, like, heart, hug. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But understand... There's a deeper agenda here. Because what this speaks of is you determine what's wisdom. And I determine what's wisdom for me. As wise as these things may be in worldly value, when compared to the wisdom and knowledge of God, they're garbage. They're dust. God's Word is wisdom. God's Word is truth. You know what? And you say, well, we don't really struggle with that. Hang on. Reality. I recognize this dashing young man. He is my oldest son. And he looks, he cleans up pretty nice. But you know, young people take pictures of themselves and and we post them. This isn't a sermon on selfies again, I promise. We post these pictures. And we say, man, that's a nice-looking young man. But you know what? We can go with Instagram. And guess what we have the ability to do? Create a filtered reality, don't we? We can take away the blemishes. We can trim off some pounds. We can make our eyes brighten. We can give ourselves dog face and mouth and all those fun things, right? We can do that with those filters. I think that picture is just fine. But you know what Josiah showed me? He showed me one with a filter on it. (laughs) I want to tell you, the picture of Josiah looks better in my eyes. Matthew McConaughey is popular. I guess some say he's attractive. I don't know. But I look at that 14-year-old boy and say, you need to be comfortable in who you are. And young people, be comfortable with who you are. Be confident in who you are because God made you wonderfully. You don't have to dress it up. You don't have to worry about blemishes because guess what? We all got them. You don't have to worry about pimples. We all go to that stage and we all get out of it, some of us. But as long as we do these things, 
And you say, but it's an innocent filter, but it gives credence to this idea. And that's what we have to fight against. Be content with God's construct. Be content with what God has created and made. This question of who am I is not new. No, Moses asked that question when God spoke to him by the burning bush. God comes to him and says, you know what, Moses? I got a job for you. And what's Moses saying in verse 11? Moses said unto God, who am I? Good question. But you know what God's response was? It doesn't matter who you are. That's what God said. Because what did God say? I will be with you. That's all you got to know, Moses. Because this isn't about you. This is about me and my people. I want to tell you, the God I serve led those children of Israel out of their bondage. It wasn't Moses. The God I serve inspired David to go kill Goliath. The God I serve established a kingdom on this earth. The God I serve is still ruling over that kingdom. And the God I serve has a son who's sitting at his right hand ruling even today. Who are you? See, it doesn't matter who we are. Because if we're truly identified by who Christ is, our identification and who we are begins to fade into the background, doesn't it? And it becomes more about who Christ is in us. We have a shelter in Raymondville that houses over 500 children. And throughout that facility, there's, I think there's 80 of these devices that for me to walk in, I have to put a thumbprint, and then some of them, it has to scan my face for that door to unlock and let me in. You know what you can't do? You can't go with your identity and have access to those rooms. And anybody that's trying to access God without having their life hidden in Jesus doesn't have access to God. Our access is defined by who Christ is. Jesus gives us that identity. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We work and work and work here on this earth to make a name for ourselves, Don't we? I've got to climb the career ladder to get to the next stage. Why? Well, maybe more money. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Increasing your earning potential. But sometimes it's pride. Because I want to be the one that's exalted. And I want to be the one that everyone else looks to. You know what our identity ought to be? Is I'm a child of God. It's not about a title I can wear. It's not about what some corporation calls me. It's not what I put in my tagline at the end of every email. But it ought to be that I'm a child of God because I believe that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. And He gives us that identity. Now, you're not your own. We tell our kids all the time, we brought you into this world and rest assured, we can take you out. (laughs) But the reality is none of us belong to ourselves. Especially as a child of God. We've been purchased. We've been bought. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? 
For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in what? Your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every aspect of our being is wholly dedicated to the one who purchased us. I want to tell you, that's an objective truth. It doesn't matter how I feel about that to determine that truth. It's objective because Christ died. And when Christ died, He purchased you and I. Now, if we will live within this construct in Christ, and we're not going to go look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 this morning, I want to show you this chart. Throughout these 14 or 11 verses, there are a number of things that are identified of being in Him, by Him, or through Him. You know what that means? That apart from Him, you don't have these things. And look at that list. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Chosen to be holy and blameless in God's sight. Predestined us to be adopted as sons. Freely given grace in the one God loves. We have redemption through His blood. God has shown us the mystery of His will. God is bringing all things together. We are chosen and predestined by God's plan. Those who hope are to the praise of His glory. We're included when we heard the gospel. We were sealed with His Holy Spirit. Notice how much of our identity really is dependent upon Him. And yet we sit here and argue and say, I'm going to be my own man. You need to be God's man. You need to live according to His will. Because in His will, all these things are brought to pass. Now, what is different for the child of God? Number one, our desires become heavenly. Which means we can live in a world that's corrupt. We can live with a government that suppresses the truth. We can live with government that we disagree with. And guess what? It's okay. You know why? Because I'm not living for this country. I'm not living for this world. We're living for heavenly purposes. Now, 1 John 2 and 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Do you want to abide forever or temporarily and be destroyed and have nothing? You see, when it's framed that way, it's an easy choice, isn't it? I want eternity. Because eternity has no limits. That's why our desires change. And instead of desiring what Chase always wants... Whenever I have a decision to make, I have to first ask, what is the will of God in this? Do you think our life would be better if we asked that question before we made decisions? What is God's will in this? And not that His will is always going to give a black and white, right or wrong answer. I want to tell you, there's a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of judgment. And if you'll ask that question, you're going to make better choices for your life overall. Because your desires aren't limited to this realm on this earth. But they are heavenly in nature. Secondly, we don't fear the future. This time of year is graduation time. And we've seen a lot of pictures and a lot of speeches have been given. And you know, you see these young people, they're excited to graduate. And then that reality hits, oh no, <laughs> now what? And Josiah, in four years, here's your now what? 
Bye. <laughs> Move out. Go make life happen. No, go serve God and make life happen. Here's why. If you send your kids off to a university so they can find themselves and they can discover who they are, let me say this very plainly, you failed as a parent. If my kids leave my home going out into this world to find out who they are, I have failed as a father. Our children need to know who they are. Our children need to be confident in who they are. And our children need to go out into this world and say, I'm not fearful of what this world is going to throw at me because who I'm serving is greater than this world. And with that confidence, they're going to have an impact. With that confidence, it's not a prideful arrogance, but it's a quiet confidence and contentment within the plan of God. That I don't have to fear. This world is scary. And it's real. But brethren, who do we serve? Why are we scared of the world? My dad talked to me last week. He said, I hate to be raising kids nowadays. I said, Dad, didn't your dad tell you that? Well, yeah, but it's different now. I was like, well, guess what? I'll tell Josiah it's different in a few years too, maybe. I don't know. It is scary. Satan's out there. But what are we doing for 15 years? Here's what we're doing. We're taking them to church. We're not training them to be disciples. When you train a disciple, that disciple is aware of what's in the world and isn't phased by it. Isn't scared of it. And that world doesn't overcome that disciple. Parents, we've got work to do. Because we don't want to raise a generation of kids who are scared of this world. We want to raise a generation of kids who are confident in God. Romans 8 and 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Back up. But ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, you know how your kids are going to get that? Not by you telling them that. They've got to see a genuine, authentic, sincere discipleship put on display in your home every day. Which means when you make a mistake, guess what you got to tell your kids sometime? I made a mistake. And there is nothing more humbling than sitting your 13 and 14 year old boys down and saying, you know what, dad messed up. But I want them to see that in their father. Because you know what I know they're going to go out there and do? They're going to go out there and mess up. And instead of running and hiding from that, I want them to be willing to confess that. And repair. And restore. Because they have a who forgives. Thirdly, what's different if our identity is truly in Christ? We stop comparing and judging. Now, I want to tell you the Bible calls us to make judgments. We're commanded to judge unrighteousness. Not according to our arbitrary relative standard, but according to God's will. We can make determinations of this is wrong. And this is sinful. And we can make that judgment and make that statement. And there's nothing wrong with that. You say, well, you can't judge my heart. No, but we can look and evaluate people's actions and their behaviors. Because those actions and behaviors reveal what's in the heart. God judges the heart. I agree. But we see enough in people's life that we can determine, you know what? That's not right. 
And brethren, we got to be able to call each other on that if we see something that's not right. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is we live with confidence in being able to make decisions and judgments within the will of God that might be different from someone else. Romans 14 and 5 says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, we are the Lord's. Now, you make different determinations for your home than I make for mine, but both fall within the realm of God's will and don't violate His word. You know what? Stay out of my business. Let me lead my home. But if I'm doing things in my home that violate God's will, that actually do cause problems, that maybe are not doctrinally sound and have an impact on other people, rest assured, those conversations need to be had. But you know what? This starts with having a healthy respect for everyone in the congregation. My father-in-law can come to me and talk to me about things he observes in my behavior, and now, (laughs) I will say thank you, Ty. (laughs) Years ago, it would have been you don't tell me. But thankfully God has been patient with me and my father-in-law has been patient with me and let me learn. I know at the end of the day, his heart is he wants good for my home. We need to have those kind of relationships with one another. And it's not a competitive thing. I want to tell you, I love my family. I think my family is amazing. But I think that because they're my I'm a blessed man, and I love my I love my wife, I love my kids, I love the life that we get to live. But I don't sit there and say, well, my life's better than someone else. Time for that. i got work to do on my home. And I'm happy to see other families happy, enjoying working and serving the Lord. Praise God. It's not about who's better. But guess what we live in? We live in this. My wife gave me this illustration. I think it's gold. And she gives me most of my list. She writes most of my sermons, if y'all don't know that. (laughs) Just to be honest. This picture is beautiful, isn't it? You know, and Elizabeth would see that picture and she's like, man... That lady's got it all together to the point that she's got her front porch decorated with pumpkins and fall flowers and themes. And I mean, she's got a latte in her hand with a a leaf in it. Wow. Come to our house and we're lucky that there's fruity pebbles not strewn all over the home at 7.30 in the morning. This woman's got it all together. What a failure I am. Now, Elizabeth doesn't say that. But I want to tell you, Elizabeth and I have worked with a lot of young ladies who say that very thing. 
I wish I could just have it all together like. And Elizabeth found this and we said, man, I wonder how that happens. Well, this lady that actually runs this site is kind of exposing the reality. Because here's the reality. You, you take a picture and then you go online and you find latte art and then you cut, cut and that image and then you paste it onto your coffee cup that you're holding, then you stand in that very comfortable position at just the right angle, the coffee, the watch, the cuff, the leaves, the mums, the pumpkins, the doormat, and hashtag cotton stem stance is the hashtag. And after four hours, you get that photo. Ladies, men too, but ladies, this is a false sense of reality. It's not real. Isn't that how we started our sermon? And you say, but this is innocent. To the extent that it doesn't hurt anyone, yes, but it still feeds that idea that i got to be something more than what I am. Because I'm not enough. And this lady's whole point was, don't we have other things to do with our time than to spend four hours trying to get the perfect shot to post to our social media? Again, use social media however you feel like you need to. I want to tell you, if you're doing this, and you're not teaching your kids about Christ, you might want to reprioritize the things in your home. The last thing that I want to talk about is when our identity is hidden in Christ, we're confident in suffering. How many of us like to suffer? None of us. We go out of our way to avoid suffering, don't we? I want to tell you, this life is harsh, tragic, and real, and suffering is going to come. I want to tell you, that pain is real. And we don't just act like it's not there. I want to tell you, the child of God embraces the suffering. You know, Paul understood suffering. And when he suffered, he said, you know what, I understand suffering because Christ suffered for me. And we can endure anything that this life challenges us with. We can endure the reality of death and separation from loved ones. We can endure the reality of strife and conflict and all those things that this world is going to throw our way. We can understand and accept the construct of the reality that we might get cancer. That we might get terminally ill. And we may know we have six weeks to live if all of a sudden at that point we have to turn something on, we've missed it. Living that way every day. And face with confidence because again, we're not living for this world. Romans 8 and 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Those brethren in the first century knew suffering. Persecution's coming for God's people. 
It's starting out right now with suppression of truth and suppression of speech. It may become violent at some point. Brethren, are we ready for that? We can't wait till the time of persecution comes and say, well, we've got to get ready. No, we better be ready now. Always. And understand what we suffer pales in comparison to the rewards and the promises that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. And we can live with confidence and serve Him. And my life is hidden in Him. You know why? Because I'm focused on the things that are not seen. Because those are the things that are eternal. Quit investing your time in yourself and what you want this world to think you are and invest your time in becoming who God has made you to be. Because in eternity, that's all God cares about. And I want to close with a simple question. When this world looks at you, do they see you or do they see a glimpse of a Savior? You see, the child of God's life should be completely hidden by Jesus. That means everything I do, I ought to promote Jesus to be the one that represents me. And if I do that, then I'm going to be a good ambassador and representative of Him. People are going to see you, but when they see you, they better learn about Him. And this morning, maybe you need to hide your life in Christ. You do that initially by being baptized into His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Galatians 2 and 20, we all know the song. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. My life is about Him. My identity is about Him. And my truth is only in accordance to His objective truth. And this morning, if you need to be hidden with Christ in God, you need to be baptized and take on His death and rise to walk in newness of life. Maybe you're here and you've done that. You're a brother or sister. You're confident in that. But you've bought in to this idea of relativism. You've bought into other truths that aren't God's truth. Then today is a for you to repent. This morning is a time for you to rededicate yourself to not live by the lies, but to live by the truth of the will of God and rededicate yourself to Him. And it starts with one single decision. We're going to sing the song, Break My Heart. This morning, if your heart needs to be broken, let God break it. Because what He rebuilds it to be will glorify Him.